What would it have been like to be there at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? What would it have done to, to us personally? What would it have stirred within us and our faith? Was it one of those events where people say, well, you just had to be there? But the truth is, you didn't. Because Jesus himself said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And all through history, over the last 2,000 years, people who never witnessed firsthand the cross of Christ have had their lives changed dramatically because of it. One of those is a man um, named Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. He was a follower of Jesus, but not originally. He was born with the name Saul. He was named after the first king of Israel. And like the Saul who was the king, this Saul had quite a temperament. He was a driven man. He was a strong-willed man. And he was rising up the ranks of the religious community to be a leader, an influential person. And there arose in his midst during this time a group of followers who claimed to believe in this man named Jesus who made crazy claims that he was the Son of God and, and died on a cross and supposedly rose from the dead. And so he set out on a mission to destroy the movement. He had people drug into prison. He watched Christians getting stoned to death. And on one such mission to go uncover the Christians in a city of Damascus, he was, he was confronted by a blinding light. And when the light shone upon him, a voice spoke and, and basically said, Saul, why are you doing this? Why are you doing? And, and Saul, who thought he was helping God, actually came to the realization that he was opposing God, that what he was doing was, was getting in the way of God's purposes. And he was led to faith in Christ. He was baptized that day. God put him on a mission to go and share the message of Christ with people who'd never heard before with a group called the Gentiles, which basically is everybody who's not a Jew. So he began to go around and, and visit communities and, and cities and start churches where, where he would proclaim this message. And his message was focused on this simple truth, that there was a man who died on a cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again, and that man can change your life. In fact, in one of his letters to uh, the, the, the region called Galatia, Paul wrote this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to brag about anything. I'm not going to boast about anything except this one main thing, that Jesus died on the cross. And we're going to focus on that for the month. Because like Paul, who probably never was at the crucifixion, never talked to Jesus when he was ministering on earth as far as we know, and yet has life dramatically transformed by the cross, we fall in that same camp. We are people whose lives have been changed by the cross. And so there's, there are crosses all over this stage today. Little ones, big ones. And as Dora said, sometimes we see crosses that are very polished, but you know that the cross that Jesus died in wasn't a polished cross. It probably was stained with the blood of criminals who were executed before him. It was probably one that was splintered, one that was rough-hewn. A few years ago, when my wife and I celebrated our 25th anniversary, we um, did a little shopping, we went to a flea market, came across some objects, but one object in particular caught our eye, and it was this. And when we saw this, we couldn't help but think, was this like the nails? They were pounded into the wrist and to the ankles of Jesus? Because you know that, that they weren't household nails, that these had to be spikes who could hold a 150 or 200-pound man to a, a, a wooden rack. That, that it had to be nails like this. When I look at this nail, it's not pretty at all. It's brutal. It's, it's brutal. A few years ago, my wife made a, a crown of thorns from a, a shrub that was in our yard. And when I look at this, I said, is that, 
Is that what the crown of thorns was possibly like? That was pressed upon his head? I mean, these things are sharp. These things will dig into your flesh. And the cross, frankly, is ugly and brutal. But but there's a contrast in the cross because it's in the contrast of the cross that we see not only the, the brutality of our sin, but the beauty of God's grace. And they, and they reflect off each other because it was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. It was our rebellion and rejection of him, who he is, that he's Lord of all, and us saying, no, I, I don't like that. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to choose to follow my will and not your will, God. Thank you very much. But the Bible says that there's another voice in this world, the voice of an evil one, who tempts us and draws us away from God. And you may never have recognized the fact that you've listened to that voice or even admit that there's a being out there called the devil, but he exists. And his, his goal is to separate us from God, to drive us from him. And yet in God's grace, he draws us back to himself, that in spite of our sin, Jesus went to the cross. I love what Paul writes. Again, he talks about the cross, but in a different way in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, every one of us included, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The ugliness of sin, the beauty of grace, all shown clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you get close to the cross, it can't help but change you. And so I want to take us back into the story In the New Testament, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and this one is found in the Gospel of Luke. And before I read this passage, I want to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you if you'd open up your heart to hear God's Word. And for many of us who've been in church for many, many years, to say, God, speak a fresh word to me about the cross. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the testimony of these writers who record for us this incredible story. Lord, I pray that it's more than a story but it's a life-changing message that penetrates our hearts deeply and turns us toward you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start reading verses, starting with verse 44. It was now about noon. By the way, Jesus is on the cross. It's Good Friday. He's been on the cross all morning. It says it's about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Who was this man that's called the centurion? You know, there's a few times in the Bible we encounter centurions. We don't know if they're the same man, probably not, but we know that their occupation was the same. We know that their temperament was probably the same. The first time occurs in Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus is ministering. It says when he'd entered Capernaum, 
A centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now, this man is a Roman soldier. He did not grow up going to church, which was the synagogue of that day. He did not grow up understanding the scriptures. He did not hang around godly people. You military guys and women know that, right? They're not the most godly people to be around. And he's a Roman soldier. And yet there's something about Jesus that in the simplicity of faith, he recognizes this guy's got authority. This guy's powerful. This guy can heal my servant. So he comes to him and says, Jesus, you don't even have to come to the house. You can just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus' response was amazing. He'd never been so impressed with faith. He says, of all the people in Israel, of all the people who know all the stories of Moses and all the prophets, of all the people who know all the miracles God has done, of all the people that know the scriptures and my character, you rise above all of them because you trust me and I will do exactly as you said. Another time we run into a centurion is in the book of Acts. Now, this one, we actually find out a name. It's found in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. This man, again, Roman, Gentile, hasn't grown up in the faith, something has happened in his life or he's observed or heard something about Jesus that has so impacted his life or maybe it's just about the the Jewish faith that he just recognizes there is a God and I want to serve him. So he does it to the best of his ability. He's generous. He helps people. He prays to God regularly. Sounds like the ideal church member, right? Yet he doesn't know that he's accepted into God's family. And so God tells Peter to go talk to him. And Peter's reluctant because Peter feels like, well, that guy's a Gentile. He's, he, he's not one of us. And God puts Peter into a trance. He sees this vision of a, of a large sheet being dropped from heaven with different animals on it and telling Peter to go and eat. And he says, I can't eat them because some of those are unclean. He says, eat. I made them. They're all good. And he repeats that vision again and again until Peter finally gets it. This is not about food. It's about people. But God has made all people. And there's no such thing as an unclean, unwelcome person. So Peter goes and meets Cornelius and his family and all the servants. And he begins to preach them and, and reminds them who Jesus is and what he came to do. And while he was preaching, it says the Holy Spirit fell upon them in such power that Peter says, you know what? Obviously, God's already accepted you. He's, he's shown his sign of approval. What can keep you from the family of God? And so he ordered that all of them be baptized to show that they were accepted by God. Now, we don't know if either of these centurions was was the one at the cross. But we do know this about centurions. They were Roman soldiers. The word centurion, much like the word century, refers to 100. 
They had had 100 of the best trained, toughest soldiers that anyone could find. These men were battle-tested, and to be a centurion meant that you had to rise up the ranks of the military, prove your skill, your ability to be ruthless in killing. And in those days, if you follow their history, Rome was filled with um, political uprisings and assassinations, and these men had to be heartless, really expert killers. And so he's given charge of the crucifixion of Jesus. He and his men are present to maintain order. Now, for those of you who don't know how the story unfolds, let me go back just a little bit. Jesus is having this dinner with his disciples. We know it as the Last Supper. He's gathered around the table. He's telling them the final things he wants them to know, things they should be doing, things they can expect. And then Jesus leaves and goes to this garden area called Garden of Gethsemane. And while he's there, he's, he's on his knees. He's pouring out his heart to God. He's in deep prayer. And in the midst of that, one of his disciples, Judas, comes walking through the garden, leading an entourage of soldiers. He walks over to Jesus, and he gives him a kiss so that they would know, because they don't really know who Jesus is. They've heard some crazy stories about him, but they don't know who he is. And that was his sign that that's the guy you need to arrest. So they arrest Jesus. They take him to the religious authorities, a group of men called the Sanhedrin, 70 men who are sort of like the supreme court of, of the Jewish culture. And they charge Jesus with blasphemy, which means he claims to be God. They say that's a sin. Nobody can claim to be God unless they were God. So they want him punished. They want him killed. They, they send him off to Pilate. Pilate examines him and says, I really don't find anything wrong with this guy. It's not that bad. And, uh, but they want him killed. And so Pilate decides, I'm not going to make the decision. I'll leave it in the hands of the people. There was a custom of the day that, that they could release a prisoner during this season. And so he, he had a prisoner named Barabbas who was an insurrectionist and a murderer. He gave him the choice. Do you guys want him released, this dastardly Barabbas, or this harmless Jesus? Who should we re- re-release? And they said, we want Barabbas. And they said, what do, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And he began to chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So the soldiers took him away. The Bible says that he was flogged, which means he was whipped with leather straps that had bone and, and fragments of metal on it that would tear into his flesh. They draped around him a purple robe. They pressed a crown of thorns on his brow. And they began to mock him. And said, oh, hail, king of the Jews. They got down on their knees and pretended to worship him. They would have got a taunting flag in football had they done that. And then he was led off to a place called the Golgotha, place of the skull. A rounded hill, kind of resembled a bare, a bare skull. And there he was nailed on a cross after his clothing was stripped down to his undergarments. Nailed on a cross between two thieves. Meanwhile, the soldiers started rolling dice for his garments to see who would get what. And all this while, the centurion is, is watching this whole thing unfold because he's in charge of the crucifixion of Jesus. So what did he witness there? What did he see that affected him so deeply? Um, Max Lucado's written several awesome books. When he first began to to write, his books were really focused on the cross of Christ. No wonder they call him the Savior and Six Hours, One Friday. Fantastic books. But he, in those books, he, he takes you into the hearts of the people that encountered Jesus. 
And he writes this about the centurion. He said, if it's true that a picture paints a thousand words, then there was a Roman centurion who got a dictionary full. All he did was see Jesus suffer. He never heard him preach or saw him heal or followed him through the crowds. He never witnessed him still the wind. He only witnessed the way he died. And that was all it took to cause this weather-worn soldier to take a giant step of faith. It was just a few hours one Friday, and something happened that caused this man, who probably never had much of a thought about Jesus, to all of a sudden come to this, this profound conclusion of who he was. So what happened there? Was he the tension Jesus got? I mean, Jesus seems to be the center of a lot of attention. There are people who actually are yelling at Jesus. They're actually, they're actually mad at Jesus as if he'd done something to hurt their family. They are screaming at him, yelling at him, telling him to come down if he's really the son of God. But at the same time, there are people who are silent except for the sobbing sounds, his mother and some of his followers. And the centurion must have looked at all that and said, why is this guy the focus of so much attention? And why is he so polarized in that people either love him deeply or hate him to death? What is it about him? This isn't an ordinary man. He noticed his kindness. He noticed how Jesus responded to the people around him, to all those taunts, to the people who were hurling insults at him, to the thieves on the cross who were yelling at him. That Jesus would turn to all of the audience and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the centurion had to think, what kind of guy is this who forgives people who are so cruel and unjust? What's gotten into this man? Is he a lunatic? What's happening to him? This guy is, he's not normal. And then there's the thief who over the course of the hours on that Friday changes his mind about Jesus. He makes this really crazy, outlandish request. Hey, when you enter your kingdom, will you remember me? And if you were here last week, you might recall that when I talked about the word remember in the Bible, it it does not simply mean recall or think about. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it was not just, hey, give me a good thought. It means to act on the behalf of someone. And so when this thief asked Jesus, now remember, this thief, he wasn't a follower of Jesus. I don't, know, I don't think he ever went to church. I don't think he put anything in the offering. I don't think he ever opened up his Bible. And here he is making this crazy request. Jesus, I finally get it. You're a king. And you're, a, you're, you're not going to die. You're going to enter a kingdom. And when you get there, would you do something good for me? And Jesus said, I'll do something really good because today you'll be with me in paradise. The centurion, as he's listening to these conversations, must go, who is this guy that makes promises like that? Why is there so much grace to a thief who's never done anything good for him, who's wasted his life? Might be the miracle of, of nature because it says that the sun refused to shine for those three hours. That's a miracle. I don't know if it was an eclipse Full eclipse. We're always trying to figure out how did God do the miracles, and maybe that was it, but it got really black for about three hours. And people had to realize something weird's going on here, folks. This doesn't happen. I think the centurion's adding all of these things up. This is not no ordinary man. What's going on is not an ordinary event. Something really amazing is happening here. We learned that the temple curtain 
at that time was torn in half. If you know about that temple curtain, it was the thick curtain that, that kept people out of the Holy of Holies, that sacred place that only the high priest could go into once a year. And he could only go in that once a year with an offering of blood for the sins of the people. And yet on this day, this curtain, which is like a theater curtain, if you've ever been around theater curtains that are very thick, this thing was three to four inches thick. And it says it was torn from top to bottom in Scripture, which is, which is almost as if God reached down from heaven and says, let me take care of this. Rips it open, as if to say, somebody very important is entering this temple, this holy of holies with the sacrifice of blood. Make room for him. And it's going to be offered and it'll never be needed to be offered again because the curtain now is permanently open that people will have access to a holy God once again. He's watching all these. He's seeing the miracles all around him. But what really impacted this man is seeing how Jesus died. What was it about his death, the moment of his death, that impacted him? Well, if you read all the Gospels, and sometimes you have to read the different accounts to get the full picture, because some will, will quote certain parts, and some will quote other parts of Jesus' dialogue on the cross. But at the very end of that afternoon, it says that the soldiers took a, a sponge on a stick. It, it had vinegar in it. And reached it up to Jesus because, it, because he was thirsty. And he couldn't talk because in the hot sun and being there all day, his lips were dry and his tongue was parched and he needed moisture. And so he gets a little bit of moisture, just enough to make two final statements. And it says he made them loudly. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it says that he laid his head down and died. And the centurion said, Oh, surely this was a righteous man. I've never seen anything quite like this. I like how Mark writes it in his gospel. He, just, he, he says it just a little bit different. When the, when the soldier saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. He was exactly who he said he was, who people mocked him for. Remember back in Jesus' ministry, there was a time when he asked his disciples, guys, come here. What are the crowds saying? Who do they say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're like Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus says, okay, fair. Who do you say that I am? And immediately Peter steps up to the plate and says, I know. You are the Christ, the promised one, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you're so right, but you didn't come up with that on your own. That was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Here's the truth about who Jesus was. He truly is the Son of the living God, meaning you are equal with God. You are his only Son. You are divine. You are powerful. You are authoritative. You are the Christ, the one who was promised to us. How did he respond? He had an awakening. He had an awakening. He immediately praised God, which, when you think about it, is pretty amazing. Because in Roman culture, they had all these gods, you know, the Greek gods, all these male and female gods. They had, they had dozens, hundreds of gods to worship. And those who were really committed to Rome worshiped the Caesar, worshiped, worshiped their political leader. They actually had to call him Lord. And at this moment, this centurion says, wait, wait, wait. 
this guy rises above all of them. And it says he praised or worshipped God. What a transformation at that moment. I remember when I was in high school, a movie came out called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it looks kind of a little bit cheesy now when you watch it, but it was a great movie at the time. I was in high school, and to see the, the life of Jesus leading up through the crucifixion and resurrection was so powerful. And there was a gentleman, he was a pretty famous actor at the time. His name was Ernest Borgnine. He played the centurion in the movie. And there was a scene where they were filming, and it was a dark gray day. It was going to be shot with, with the camera on him, the centurion, at the foot of the cross. The, the, the cross wasn't actually going to be in the scene, that's, so they decided not to put the man, the character who played Jesus, up on the cross. They just put a dot on the cross and stare at that dot as if you're looking at Jesus. Problem was, he couldn't get into character. So he asked if someone could read Jesus' words from the Bible. So the director got out some scriptures, and he began to read them. And his first statement was this. He read Jesus' words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And all of a sudden, Borgnine says that that penetrated him. And he felt such shame for his sin. And then he said something very profound happened. He says, I looked up at the cross, and he saw Jesus. He saw the sweat. He saw the blood flowing from the wounds. And he said, pouring out from his eyes was love and compassion for him. He heard another voice that said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then the body of Jesus, he said, I saw it go limp. And he said he began to sob uncontrollably. This actor, he's not playing. He's actually really crying. And when the scene was finished being filmed, the director looked around and he saw other people who weren't even in the scene watching it, watching the moment, and they were in tears too. In fact, he asked them to, they could redo the scene because there was too much crying. And Borgnine says that that day, that moment, impacted him for the rest of his life. In an interview with Guidepost magazine, he said this, As that centurion learned 2,000 years ago, I too have found that you simply cannot come close to Jesus without being changed. I think that's so true. When you really understand what happened at the cross, it elicits a response. And that's why in the early church, when they began to go around and teach and, and talk and plant churches, they had a simple message. It was God sent a man named Jesus who did such great things, did miraculous things. But he was put to death on a cross. But then he rose from the dead. We see it right away in the book of Acts. It's the second chapter of Acts. Thousands and thousands of Jewish people have gathered in Jerusalem for this um, festival called Pentecost. Now, Pentecost um, means 50 weeks, but it really refers to the period of harvest, which is kind of ironic because it became known as the first harvest in the church. Because on that day, God sent his Holy Spirit with such force that people heard rushing sounds of wind and, and their attention was, was, was drawn to the apostles. And Peter stood up and he began to preach. And he says, Israel, listen. I need to tell you about Jesus. God brought him. He was the one that the prophets told us about. And he came doing good and doing miracles. And yet wicked men 
put him to death. Yet God saw that his body would not see decay. He raised him from the dead. And when he got to the climax of this sermon, Peter said an amazing thing. He looked at the audience and said, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It says they were cut to the heart. Because listen to Peter's words. You crucified him. Think about that. Didn't the soldiers crucify Jesus? Weren't they the ones that pounded the nails in his hands and in his feet? Or you go back, wasn't it Pilate who ordered them to do that? Didn't Pilate put Jesus on the cross? Wasn't Pilate just doing what the religious leaders demanded and the crowd demanded that they do, that they're the ones really responsible for putting Jesus on the cross? Why in the world is Peter telling these thousands of people, you guys put Jesus on the cross? Because it was their sin that put Jesus on the cross. If Peter were here today, he would look across this room and say, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And like those people, you may be cut to the heart, go, what do we do then? How do I fix it? How do I change? And what Peter told them was this, repent. What does that mean? It means you turn around. Instead of walking away from God, you direct your life toward God. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means I'm changing the direction. I'm changing the focus of my life. It is now Godward. He says, repent and be baptized. What is baptism? It's a statement that I'm fully surrendered to God. It's a watery grave to say that my old way of life, that old person is being put to death, and just like water washes dirt from the body, I am washed clean in the blood of Christ. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day, 3,000 people said, count me in, gave their lives to Christ. You know, it's still true today that when you get close to Christ, it changes you. And I want to give you an invitation to make a confession that that soldier made that day that Jesus is truly who he said he was. And to be willing to turn your life in that Godward direction, even say, God, I'm going to be fully surrendered to you. Whatever that looks like, I want to be surrendered to you. Because the cross of Christ will change you. It'll change you forever. You've heard Doris' story. You've heard my story before. There's stories, hundreds of stories of people in this church who've encountered the cross. We weren't there 2,000 years ago to see it, but it's just as powerful and real today.